Welcome back to Kairos. I am Joshua Pfeiffer here today with Pastor Matthew Anker. Matt, good to have you here. Good to be here, Josh. And we're here with Matt today to talk about how a small Lutheran rural congregation was transformed by the arrival of brothers and sisters in Christ, mainly from Africa. So Matt, really good to have this conversation with you and hear this story. Um, So you were a pastor, Matt, in the Lutheran Church of Australia, and you you received a call to a place called Shepparton. Mm -hmm. Perhaps you can begin by telling us just a little bit about um, where Shepparton is, to begin with for those who aren't aware, and what you discovered when you first arrived at this new call. Sure. Um, Shepparton's a regional city about two hours north of Melbourne, uh, up the Hume and a little bit to the east. It's a town that probably is most famous for SPC, the Shepparton Preserving Company, and has been a traditionally a fruit growing and dairy um, farming community. It's a town of about 30 to 50,000, depending on how the boundaries are drawn, and, mm-hmm. and has had a history of uh, cultural diversity for probably the last 50 or so years the arrival of different groups at different times and has been a, a town that has responded mostly positively to that. Mm. I was called to Shepparton in late 2006 um, and at that time was told that uh, this very small congregation, which was part of a bigger parish, uh, had had recent contact with some refugees from, from Africa and that this was an emerging uh, opportunity for mm. the congregation's ministry. However, by the time I phoned the chairperson at the time, she said, look, the Africans have all but disappeared, and, and we're not sure what those opportunities might be in the future, but it seems for now that it's, it's not happening. Mm. This is after you'd arrived? No, no, before? prior to mm-hmm. accepting the call. Mm-hmm. So I accepted the call headed to Shepparton, a small congregation which averaged between 20 and 30 people on a Sunday, Mm -hmm. Um, very typical of a regional town and congregation, housed in a church that was built as a temporary uh, church 40 years earlier. Mm -hmm. It was a mission congregation and Mm. the LCA put up a transportable church um, to see whether or not the church would stick. And uh, so it was very small, uh, could seat 60 at a pinch, mm-hmm. and, and was just uh, really a congregation that had worked hard to survive over the years, some very, very faithful people, and had really been focused largely on survival. Mm. Um, mm. Real hard to reach out, but limited opportunities, mm. and so... Uh, there was a sense of, I guess, concern about the future. Yeah. And so if you go to Shepparton Lutheran Church today, it looks very different, of course. And there's been a big journey that's happened since. And so after you arrived then, what what were the first steps in um, the new things that happened in in Shepparton when you started seeing some new faces show up? So if I can maybe take it back one, one step from there. So in the, there was a vacancy between pastorates and, uh, and during that time, the federal government 
developed a pilot program to resettle refugees in regional areas, and Shepparton was one of these places. And these refugees came out of Eastern Africa, and the first 12 families were from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Two of those initial families ha were uh, Lutheran. The, the husband and father of both families, brothers in fact, had grown up in the Lutheran church in the Congo. And so when the Department of Immigration asked them in Africa, where would you like to live in Shepparton, a town they'd never heard of, their response was, we need to be near the Lutheran church because she's our mother. <laughs> um, and, and so they rocked up in the vacancy, knocked mm. on the door of the church with no English, um, large families, no licences, mm. um, walked to church in cold uh, winter's morning and, and began to worship. And, mm. the, and the folk in the vacancy did a great job of caring for them and, and seeking to reach out. By the time I got there, as I say, things, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what transpired, but um, they weren't as regular at worship. In fact, hadn't seen them for a few months. And we did have one Sudanese family um, who transferred from Melbourne, and that gentleman was able to act as a translator. And so I took him with me to visit. And we What were... language were they speaking? Uh, so... In the Congo, they speak French and Swahili, mm -hmm. so mostly Swahili, and we were able to communicate, um, extend welcome to them. We, in fact, the very first visit I did, I didn't have a translator. I couldn't speak Swahili. He couldn't speak English, mm -hmm. but he knew I was a pastor mm -hmm. um, and welcomed me with open arms, and we sort of laughed a lot at each other and mm -hmm. prayed together and... And that was it. But after that Sunday, those families basically returned to church mm. and have continued to be the backbone of, of the new arrivals. Right. Now, some people may not be aware um, on this point that we, they might think of the Lutheran Church um, you know, coming out of Germany and settling, you know, moving into places like Australia and the United States, and, and they may not realise that there actually are a lot of Lutherans in Africa. Um, and, and in fact, I'm not sure what the current statistics are, but there's certainly a lot more Lutherans in, in some of these African countries that are in Australia. That's for, for sure, isn't it? Mm. Indeed. I mean, yeah. these two families had spent um, a decade or more in refugee camps in Tanzania, where I think there are around 7 million Lutherans. Incredible. Um, um, places like Ethiopia, there's, again, 6 to 7 million Lutherans. Mm -hmm. And there's many other countries that have... Lutheran churches um, far bigger than ours in Australia, certainly, mm. but you know, large by any standards mm. and growing, yeah, growing at a phenomenal rate. Yeah. yeah, and so you have these first two core families. So, so what happens after that? So, uh, African folk are great evangelists mm -hmm. <laughs> and very concerned for the spiritual well-being of of their brothers and sisters. So. As more families arrived, um, these families would check in with them about wh where are you worshipping, um, are you being cared for, uh, can, our, can our pastor visit you, and, and I was always welcomed with open arms and, and people often found a place in our congregation much more easily perhaps than they would have in a larger uh, congregation. Mm. 
One of the key things that broke down the barriers for us was the fact that most of the people had come through refugee camps run by Lutheran World Federation. Yep. So they knew the word Lutheran yep. and they knew that it was it, it, it represented something that they could trust. Mm, something that had helped them along the way. Indeed. Yeah. And certainly in Tanzania where most of our uh, early refugees came from, the Lutheran Church itself had run the refugee camps and so they had experienced firsthand the mercy care of mm. brothers and sisters from that church and so they came with a certain degree of trust in, mm. in who we were and what we might offer. And so are we talking about in these years one or two extra families coming in or give us a bit of a picture of how things began to change in terms of um, your, your pews being empty or full? Sure. So start of 2007, we, you know, as I say, averaged 20 to 30 people on a good Sunday, uh, all very monocultural. Mm -hmm. um, by the end of, of 2007, um, we probably had about 50 people mm -hmm. in worship. Uh, and these families that were joining us were not small families, so it's not uncommon to have six, seven, eight children. Uh, over the next couple of years, um, we had fairly rapid influx of people. We found ourselves caring for about 150 refugees Incredible. and with an average attendance of about 90 mm -hmm. in worship. To give you some idea, the church would seat 60, mm -hmm. but we crammed in up to more than 90. When people received communion, there was only room for a single file down the aisle. <laughs> they'd come forward, receive communion, then they'd have to exit the church. There was Fortunately, there was a door just adjacent to the altar rail. Mm -hmm. They'd receive communion, go out the church, and some of them would come back in for the rest <laughs> of the service, and some would stay outside and enjoy the sunshine. Such a great problem to have. It was mm. wonderful, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. So, but it, it brought with it um, big challenges as well. Logistical problems, yeah. And and pa pastoral care was perhaps the biggest one. Right. Um, these folk had been through some of the most extreme forms of torture that mm -hmm. you can imagine. Mm -hmm. um, if settling into a new country was not enough, um, the things that they had experienced and and the scars that they carried were beyond anything that we can imagine. Mm. And so, uh, you know, the pastoral care needs for each of these brothers and sisters was, I, would, I was asked to estimate one time, you know, what it looked like as opposed to a regular Australian yeah. member. Yeah. And I said at the time, I think it's probably about 10 times um, the needs of, yeah. a, of a regular member. Yeah. I'd say somewhere between 10 and 20 times the yeah. needs. So it presented us with some pretty unique challenges and, and wonderful opportunities. And you're on your own, more or less partially speaking, I imagine. Like, I mean, for those who are perhaps um, watching or listening who come from larger congregations, they might be used to a staff, several pastors, maybe lay people, deaconesses, office staff, this sort of stuff like that. I imagine you were more or less flying solo in, in a lot of this. Yeah, that's that's true. I was um, in the early days, at yeah, least. Yeah, mm. learnt to do lots of things, um, from driving buses to <laughs> um, dealing with um, 
people's finances, mm. um, rental agreements, fighting landlords over unfair things. and Sort of advocacy work yeah, almost, yeah. yeah. Yeah, as taking people to hospital appointments, uh-huh. Uh-huh. dealing with the immigration department, um, along with the regular pastoral duties. Yeah. So it was a, a very busy time and... It was a as as I said at the beginning, it was a small congregation with limited human resources. Yeah. Um, the people were already stretched and tired by the time I got there because they'd been so focused on surviving for yeah. so long. Yeah. Now speaking about those people, the already existing uh, members at at Shepparton, um, how how did they go with this transition, and how did you know these these different cultural backgrounds mixing in together? Um, were there any tensions there, you know, and it's a bit of a, um, there's often a few jokes amongst, you know, Lutheran pastors about um, how people cope with even minor <laughs> upsets and unsettled, you know, things that unsettle the, the status quo. And I, I simply can't imagine what, what this would have been like. Sure. And so how, how was that dynamic? I'll say on the whole, we were blessed with um, a remarkable sense of family. Mm. Um, one of the things that bound us together was the fact that we had Africans from up to seven different countries. Each of those countries has subcultures of tribal groups and different languages. So we never had one African group that was dominant enough to split off and form their own service. Mm. So we were forced together from day one and we were forced to try and understand and work together from day one. And that was a great blessing. I think some people found it more difficult than others. Um, When you think of the stereotypical LCA uh, Lutheran with a Germanic background and used to things going according to schedule and so forth, that's going to have clashes with uh, an African Lutheran particularly one who's been in a refugee camp for decades, for whom um, the hours on the clock mean nothing. Uh Um, So these were some struggles Uh we we had. There was one African man, the first one, who came, Bahati. He said to me one day that uh, when we put our hand in the pot and eat together, we become brothers. Uh And for him, the welcome that he received through... Um, fellowship with brothers and sisters, regardless of where they were from, was very important in bringing together that unity. Uh. Mm. And so we've talked a little bit about the challenges that you faced in this very unique uh, context, um, and perhaps there's there's plenty more of them that you may want to comment on, but I'm also interested in what were the joys of, of this experience and um, what perhaps were the some of the surprises, you know, in a positive sense for you in, in ministry um, in this situation? Life was full of joy in, in that particular context, even in the midst of the challenges. Um, African folk have a very vibrant faith and, and um, it captures their whole body. <laughs> so... Yeah. So worship with African folk was always uh, an expression of joy in the gospel. And we were always very careful to follow the order of the liturgy. We didn't use necessarily the chanted form or anything like that, but we followed the order because it was essential for teaching and a sense of security, especially for people with English as a fourth or fifth or sixth language. 
it gave them something that they could hang on to and in fact was familiar to most of them. But within that order, there would be spontaneous expressions of joy and celebration. Mm -hmm. So we'd have a baptism and the whole church would erupt in, um, in uh, ululation, that mm -hmm. African sound of celebration and singing and dancing. And mm -hmm. just I couldn't think of a more appropriate response to, to God welcoming one of yeah. a, a new child into his family. Um, That's what happens in heaven, right? Indeed. Amongst the angels. <laughs> indeed. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, just that freedom to express the joy that mm -hmm. was in their hearts. But also uh, I think of Good Friday services where uh, they would, African folk would be deeply moved even to the point of tears yeah. um, as they contemplated all that Christ had suffered for them. So that very, I guess it's kind of incarnational expression of the faith in, mm. in their worship life. Um, the resilience of the people was a surprise when I heard their stories yeah. and the joy of them recognising God's presence in the midst of their suffering. Um, it's all well and good to talk about that in theory, but when you hear what some folk have been through, and hear them recognise that God never abandoned them, mm. that they know God was with them, and is the very reason that they were able to tell me the story. Mm. Um, these things were just uh, such a privilege to yeah. be a part of. And I guess the other thing, if I can just add, uh, African folk have a high regard for the Word of God and a hungry for teaching uh -huh. and so in many respects they haven't been polluted if you like by postmodernism, uh -huh. and and so see the scriptures as the ultimate authority in the church and for the life of Christians and are willing to submit to that uh -huh. um, even when it contradicts what they've always believed uh -huh. you know they're very teachable people and uh, and embrace that journey together. Mm. It is so refreshing, those experiences, isn't it, to, to meet people from other cultures who have this sense of just of spiritual reality and, and of, um, you know, often, a, uh, I'm not sure if this was your experience there as well, but a fervency in prayer often goes along with this. This is my experience with, with Papua New Guinean Christians yes. who often come down into a, to Australia, you know, have, I, I think of in my, um, one of my congregation before, my current call where, You'd have people regularly come, perhaps, to talk to you about issues in the, in the church, um, and and want to sort of look at an administrative or political sort of solution, um, which which has its place, of course. Whereas the Papua New Guinean folk would just come and just want to pray. Indeed. This, this is an obvious, pastor. This is yeah. what you do, yeah. right? Yeah. And it, it's quite refreshing, and it's quite encouraging, and it, it's um, and it, it gives one a sort of renewed trust in, in, in the core of our faith, I think, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. I mean, to have members who invite you to come and visit and accept that you may not have time to do anything but pray, <laughs> but that's what they want you there mm -hmm. for, is, um, is a great joy mm. too, so... Now you mentioned music um, and and the music and worship in particular, and I know that um, music has been a significant aspect of the shepherd and story as well, hasn't it? So perhaps you can uh, elaborate on that a little bit for us and tell us a little bit more about um, the choir as well and that part of the story. Yeah, yeah. Um, very early on, uh, 
as we're looking at how to develop this, I guess, multicultural approach to worship, we felt was important that African members be given an opportunity to express their faith in song, which is such a big part of who they are. And so um, a choir began with just uh, three or four people. Mm -hmm. um, but we soon realised that whether there were even one or two or 20, um, that's sufficient for an African choir to, to continue and to sing during the service. So it started very small and very humbly, uh, but very quickly um, it became a regular and important feature of life together. Our members took their service in the choir exceptionally seriously. They practiced twice a week for usually two or three hours a time. And if members of the choir were not able to attend during the week, they would absent themselves on the weekend because they weren't prepared enough because they hadn't spent enough time, not just in practice, but also in prayer um, together with the choir. And they would typically sing uh, songs that they had brought with them. Uh, often they were songs that they had simply remembered coming from mm. basically oral cultures, songs that had been a part of who they are for decades. Uh, and, and other, as they became more familiar with technology, they would access stuff through the internet like everybody mm -hmm. and, and would bring newer material as well. But the bulk of what they sang was simply uh, words of scripture. Hmm. And, yeah, the choir became very important on a number of levels. Uh, one was it just enhanced our worship life and brought a great deal of joy to the community hmm. um, right across the board. It also provided a very concrete link for people arriving. Yes. So more than once I'd see someone come off the plane, we would welcome them in Melbourne, bring them back to Shepherd, and usually amidst uh, great singing on the bus trip on the way back. <laughs> um, but then we'd bring them into worship and the songs they were hearing um, from the choir, they would be joining in. And you know, there were songs they sang in a refugee camp the week before. Wow. So it provided them with a, a sense of the communion of saints being yeah. much bigger than just this one place and a real sense of, of joy that they haven't lost everything. Mm. Um, the choir also became very good evangelists, I guess I could say. Mm. <laughs> they were privileged to sing in a variety of places that we wouldn't normally expect uh, a church choir to be invited to. And they were always very bold about what they were singing. Mm -hmm. And um, they never shied away from singing things that proclaimed law and gospel. Mm -hmm. And they would ensure that, that the white people there got a translation of it as well. So they sang for the former Prime Minister Paul Keating at an oration at the State Library. They sang a number of times for the Victorian Premier's gala dinner. Um, they sang at the Melbourne Arts Centre. Uh, a few of them sang on a, a uh, song by the band The Presets. Uh, that wasn't a gospel-based <laughs> song, but... Just a bonus, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so the, the opportunities that they had to give voice to the Christian faith in the public square were remarkable. Mm, mm. Um, they were 
they were paid to sing at uh, soccer matches in, yeah. in Melbourne. I can't remember the name of the Melbourne team. That's terrible, isn't it? Victory, is it? Victory, that's yeah. it. So yeah. uh, they were even paid by um, by local council in St Kilda to come and sing Christian Christmas carols in in the middle of a shopping precinct Wonderful. Uh, before Christmas. So uh, they played a, a very big role and I believe continue to do so um, in a number of ways. Yeah. yeah. Now presumably when we're talking about um, growing choirs and all this sort of stuff, um, something has happened to the space in the church there. So you were talking about you're already overflowing at one stage. Yes. Um, and I know there is a bit of a story with uh, with the building there at Shepparton. So perhaps we can go and tell us a little bit about that sure. part of the story. Yeah. yeah, our little transportable church of uh, 60 seats was inadequate very quickly. Um, but we weren't in a position financially to do anything about it. We looked at trying to renovate it in the cheapest possible way. But um, because it was in a residential area with all the council regulations, as soon as we touched it, it was an enormous job to bring it up to code and, mm. and was just not feasible. So we rented a um, disused uniting church for quite a number of years. Uh, we rented it each Sunday morning and we would go in there and set it up the night before and uh, after worship, come together and pack it all up again. Uh, which served us very well, but one of the things we recognised was that for refugees who've been displaced and don't have a home, um, who are then potentially living in, in rental and temporary accommodation for a long period of time, the church really is their place to feel secure and at home. Mm -hmm. And so we started fundraising to try and build a church this was actually spurred on or encouraged when one Sunday the uh, treasurer came to me. She was completely pale. <laughs> <laughs> she, she had a cheque for $100,000 in the offering plate, which I knew was going to be there um, <laughs> because the members had told me that they were going to give that money uh, for the church's work as it was expanding. And that really kicked us on to have mm. confidence to, mm. to seek support for the growing ministry that was there. Uh, Japarit congregation um, really was instrumental. They, uh, their pastor at the time was Paul Kerber, and he had encouraged them to see or to examine what God's mission for them was given the changes in the local context. A small town had traditionally been a very strong farming area, but the farms were getting bigger, the families were getting smaller, and the church was declining. And they recognised that they perhaps didn't have much opportunity for mission in their immediate vicinity, mm -hmm. but looked for opportunities outside. And so they actually invited us as a congregation to come over and tell our story. Hmm. And they gathered people from right around the Wimmera, and we took the choir and they sang and and we told the story and and this started to generate interest and enthusiasm for what God was doing in Shepparton. Um, we have very fond memories of that first trip and the, it made a huge impact on um, our African folk, the way they were received so warmly by people who were complete strangers mm. and yet were part of the same family. Uh, 
and it kind of snowballed from there and the Victorian district purchased a block of land and held it in trust for us um, because it was a good opportunity and we could mm. see that it would make a good site for a new church. And after quite a number of years, we'd raised about $300,000, which wasn't enough to pay for the land, <laughs> let alone build a church. Um, and I came over to Adelaide to talk to the board for mission on their invitation and and was basically told that the church doesn't really have the capacity to fund the building yeah. of, of churches and encouraged us to keep going, but mm. to recognise that there was limited opportunity for support. Um, that same day I was taken by a pastor to visit a, a very faithful couple in the Adelaide Hills who ultimately um, paid to build the church. So well in excess of a million dollars. Um, very humble, mm. uh, faithful folk who... Church isn't named after them or anything like that. No, no. in fact, they would be horrified <laughs> yeah. if it was. Um, who just rejoiced in the in hearing what God was doing, brought to tears even, and um, and couldn't wait to be a part of it. Considered mm. it a privilege to be able to give and to be a part of the story. So, so from there we went. We we, we went and. Uh, began plans to build mm. <laughs> and in the process of that our district bishop at the time was Greg Peach and he encouraged us to consider how we could use the space to engage the wider community um, throughout the week and after looking at various options we decided that we would try and build an African community centre as part of the church building this was received by the Victorian government with great um, enthusiasm. Mm. In fact, they contributed $483,000 to that building. And St Paul's African House was built alongside the church mm -hmm. as a, a separate entity in some respects, but as a key uh, way in which the St Paul's community continues to serve the wider community. And so that community space can see over a thousand people through it in a week, um, and not always, but most weeks it would have a couple of hundred people through it. Mm. Um, not always with church functions, but with plenty of messages around that they're welcome yeah. in the church and uh, you know multicultural playgroups filled with uh, Muslim folk from Afghanistan and. Iraq and Syria, mm. um, who over the course of the time that I was there, I saw their relationship with me and with the church completely transformed mm. and just wonderful opportunities to serve without expectation, but to see God at work in the midst of that yeah. uh, was, was quite incredible. So we, we uh, opened the new church in... November 2014, mm -hmm. I think there was about 500 uh, people in attendance, mm -hmm. people from all over Australia came to, to celebrate mm -hmm. and, and there were over 500 people, I think there was around 1,000 people who contributed to the, to the building of the church, ranging from um, 
a 12-year-old girl, I think she was, who broke open her piggy bank after she'd heard the story and sent every cent she had um, through to the folk who gave over a million dollars and we wanted to honour all those people and to include them mm. as part of the story and it was um, a very joyful service that I think uh, lasted about three hours. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of singing and, and celebration mm. and, and uh, yeah, a, a wonderful beginning of a new chapter for the congregation. Mm. Mm. And I'm aware that as part of that um, ongoing growth, you talked about the pastoral care demands um, earlier on, that there uh, you did get some assistance along the way, and I think you ended up with a deaconess there, if yeah, I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how that came about? Sure. So when I visited the board for mission, they were upfront about the fact that they didn't have the funds or ability to assist with a, a physical building, but they were concerned about um, human resources. Mm -hmm. And so they very generously funded uh, a lay worker position mm -hmm. for three years. And um, we spent two years, I think, two or three years trying to uh, get a lay worker, but we were not successful. Um, we, we advertised extensively in Australia, but didn't get anybody. Um, we actually offered the position to a couple of people overseas that fell through for various reasons. And finally, uh, I had come to know a deaconess in the States who had worked on the Kenyan hymnal and through um, reaching out for Swahili resources, her and I had become friends. Yeah. And, and I sent her the position description. I said, I think this sounds like a deaconess position. What do you think? And she sent a message back to me and said, it's textbook deaconess stuff. Yeah. Um, you definitely should pursue it. So um, long story short, uh, we ended up uh, calling a deaconess from the LCMS and her and her family moved over. Uh, she actually read the ad and sent me an email saying, when I first saw this, I, I thought it was a, a great opportunity for a young deaconess to go and have an adventure, and I had absolutely no interest in it at all, um, and I really don't want to have any interest in it, uh, but it won't leave me alone, and so I'm emailing mm. you so I can put it to rest and mm. ignore it. Mm. You can tell me that I'm not suitable and yeah. I have to come <laughs> That's down. right. Mm. So... Uh, anyway, within 12 months, Deaconess Kathleen and her husband and three children were in Australia. So mm. it, it was an absolute joy to be in ministry together with her. She um, brought wonderful um, theological training and understanding of the ministry of the church and a real commitment to um, to faithful teaching mm. and and the care of souls. Mm. So someone once asked her in my presence, you know, what's your job? And she said, well, pastor's called to word and sacrament ministry. And my job is to do whatever I can to make sure he can do that. And uh, it was a very humbling mm. what a blessing. response to yeah. hear and incredible blessing that, you know, nothing was, was too small, nothing was too big 
for her. Her role was to ensure that the Lord's work could continue through word and sacrament and, and her work of mercy care, of teaching and of mentoring people uh, was just outstanding. Mm, yeah. mm. And so you've begun to talk a bit about your um, ministry um, and how it was, I guess, uh, interacted with, with hers. It makes me think too, I'm interested in how this whole experience may have changed your approach to ministry in any way. I'm particularly curious personally as a, as a pastor, yeah. um, every context we minister into, the people there shape us in some way and they change some of our perceptions. And, and perhaps I could imagine how this could have could have done that in some significant ways for a pastor. Sure. Um, look, unquestionably it has. And I, I, I hope that they're all for the good. I think they are. Um, I probably entered into this particular call with a much more clearly defined understanding of the task of the pastor, what was and wasn't of the pastoral ministry. And that's still my foundation, you know, it's fairly well articulated in our letter of call. But the way in which you go about that does change from context to context. So I would have people challenging me about, you know, the fact that it wasn't my job in the middle of the night to be out lighting someone's hot water service for the yeah. fifth time that day. Um, but I would say that each of those encounters, whether it was doing that or filling in an immigration application form or taking someone to Centrelink or whatever it might be, that each one of those was an opportunity for a pastoral encounter, mm -hmm. but also an opportunity to care for the most vulnerable in, in the needs that they had. You know, we, we talk about the pastor being in the person of Christ, in persona Christi, and particularly in worship where we're preaching and administering the means of grace, the Africans have an understanding that the pastor brings Christ to them in every circumstance. This was brought home to me in a probably only the second visit I did. Um, the family didn't speak English. I went with a translator in the late afternoon and realised very quickly that uh, I was going to have to do a lot of eating in this uh, ministry, <laughs> which probably accounts for certain things now, um, because a full meal was produced for mm. me. Not a cup uh, of tea. No. Mm. And so we, we sat on the floor eating, and um, as we went to leave, after I'd prayed with them and, and you know, we'd spent a couple of hours together, the husband and father of the family said through the interpreter, this is a, a great day for this family, a day we will always remember. And I asked why that was the case. And he said, because the pastor visited us. I was a bit gobsmacked. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought that I'd done a lousy job of visiting, um, that I didn't understand so much of what was taking place. And yet this man would would say such a profound and um, for me it was almost over the top expression mm. of appreciation mm. but over the years I came to understand that it wasn't that I was there mm. it's that Christ was there <laughs> in me uh, ministering to them and so I think we tend to be almost apologetic or embarrassed to speak about the fact that we act in persona Christi, but this actually 
reminded me that that in itself is just inappropriate because we act in this way for the blessing and benefit of others. Mm. And so I guess I'd be much bolder Mm. about that now than I was in the past. Mm. Mm. Um, And here we are, you've now left this this ministry. Um, At the time of recording, you've moved on to to another role, which maybe we'll speak about briefly in a moment. But um, do you miss it? Yeah, very much. Mm. Yeah, it's been very hard to leave. Mm. And the the ministry at Shepparton does continue, of course. It goes beyond Matt Anchor. And, Absolutely. And, um, and one of the things I've heard you emphasize a number of times during this conversation is um, is the things that God did in Shepparton. I was just, when I was preparing for this, this conversation, I, I looked up again online some of the articles that have been written, things like... Um, Matt Anker, who transformed a community in Shepherd like none other. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is great. <laughs> um, and just lovely to hear your emphasis again and again of um, the work that God has done there. And, and you happen to be his man on the ground at that moment. And, you know, the greatest joy for us now, I talk about us, our family, is to see them being, the, the, our brothers and sisters there, our family being ministered to by a faithful pastor whom they have received with with joy and thanksgiving mm. and uh, and to know that they are being cared for mm. and, and to see new things happening and to see you know when we step out of the way that God continues and does even more so and how has your family been been blessed through this your your two girls more or less grew up there I guess yeah. to a large extent and your wife Larissa yeah um yeah it's hard to tell because that's been our experience yeah but look I think they have a much broader view of the world than they would have before. Um, they've been through um, some very significant challenges um, as a as a family in a demanding position, but also with their friends who were predominantly African, and um, and, and that has enriched their lives and also reinforced to them um, the importance of faith and. and of the promises of God in their own lives. Um, it's given us opportunity to work in Africa briefly, mm. and that in itself has um, reminded them of the transitory nature of life mm. and of the importance of, of, of holding on to those promises of God each and every day because we just don't know what the day holds. Mm. And um, so... I would say that the greatest blessing for all of us has been a deepening of faith and and seeing God at work in the midst of our weaknesses and inabilities and lack mm. of experience and all of that. Mm. That mm. almost despite us, God did good stuff anyway. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And your current call now um, has been something that it seems to have been a... a an organic development from where you've been in some way. So perhaps you can just tell us what you're currently doing. Sure. So I've been called to serve as uh, assistant to the Bishop International Mission for the LCA. Um, a long title <laughs> that is, I guess, uh, to use a more common phrase, mission dire- international mission director. Yeah. So Lots of travelling. Lots of travelling, um, overseeing... Um, part, church partnerships, predominantly with our church partners in Southeast Asia, yeah. uh, working together with a great team, uh, being privileged to see God at work in other cultures um, throughout Papua New Guinea and Southeast Asia. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, Matt, thanks again for uh, being here today to talk about this uh, wonderful story of God's work in Shepparton and uh, God's blessings to you and your continued ministry. Thanks, Josh. God bless you. Okay. And we are back for the bonus lightning round with Reverend Matthew Anker. So, favourite movie, Matt? Uh, Wedding Singer. <laughs> Very good. What's um, oh, what's his name? Um, Adam Sandler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very good. Yeah. Drew Barrymore. That's yeah. it. Good flick. Good man. Good what, music. What's your favourite place in the world? Lots of them, but probably if I had to pick one right now, I'd say uh, Vanuatu. Hmm. First overseas trip with my dear wife. Hmm. Wonderful memories. Very hmm. relaxed, chilled out time. Vanuatu. Awesome place. Lovely people. Um, so they love singing at Shepparton. If you have to sing uh, karaoke, what do you sing? Given my vocal prowess, I'd have to go for some early new order when the lead singer couldn't really sing. Yeah, very yeah. nice. <laughs> um, and uh, you weren't always a pastor. What's no. the worst job you ever had? Worst job would be uh, cleaning toilets at a smorgasbord restaurant. <laughs> That also uh, had very large uh, inebriated functions. Mm, mm, enough said. <laughs> yeah, more than enough. <laughs> um, is there any uh, books you would recommend that we read that people probably haven't read? Uh, based on the conversation we've just had regarding refugees and, and their experience, there's a book called What is the What? What is the What? Which uh, it tells the story of a uh, one of the lost boys from South Sudan. Yeah. Very easy to read, but powerful book. Thank you. Matt, thanks again. Pleasure. <laughs>